The following message is entitled, True Teachers, Confronting Quitting, Confronting Error. This message was given during the morning service on January 8, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. For the sake of the recording, we're returning in the middle Sunday of the month once again to 1 Timothy. I'm doing these various topics, John, the Gospel of John, first Sunday of the month, middle Sunday of the month, 1 Timothy, last Sunday of the month, Titus chapter 2, uh, simply to give a greater form of teaching, since I move so slowly through various texts that we're not stuck permanently in just one passage Sunday after Sunday to uh, mix things up. That's why I'm doing that arbitrarily. So today we return to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, verses 3 to 7, and I introduce this next portion of this first series. The first series is located for those in church here in the note sheet, uh, two-thirds of the way down the front side where it says priority number one. I realize that I failed to uh, correct the uh, typeface and the shadowing so it's more readable, but basically priority number one is God wants true teachers and pure doctrine in our churches, verses 1 to 20, and we will get to that outline uh, in a while. It's kind of an introductory sermon uh, containing some historical content and analysis of the American church. As we begin to plumb the depths of this first major topic about biblical teaching, the title really gives the subject of what Paul starts to deal with in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, true teachers confront quitting and confronting error. It starts off extremely negative when God, the Holy Spirit, is writing through Timothy, this pastoral epistle. Um, he starts off with issues of massive negativity for all churches. It, and this is really following the pattern of the Christian life. You can't put on holiness until you repent. So the negativity is repenting of sin and then putting on holiness. And so Paul in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 starts with the negativity and the urgent need to renounce false teachers in verse 3, and then in verse 5, putting on pure and holy and righteous instruction. So this is after Paul has given us in verse 2 the incredible power source of any local church, and this is an epistle written for local churches anywhere, how they operate and what their priorities are to be. Uh, after giving us the grace, mercy, and peace triad, triad that we finished last month, he now bursts us into the issue of conflict, quitting, and confrontation in verses 3 to 7. I'd like to start by referring back a blast from the past, back to Francis Schaeffer, an American theologian. He was brilliant. He was a theologian, philosopher, and an author. He wrote uh, 25 in-depth books on philosophy, theology, the Christian life in relation to the world and society before he died of cancer in 1984. His last book that he published before his death when he died was The Great Evangelical Disaster in 1984, almost 40 years ago, in that book where he confronts his last, uh, knowing that he was dying in terminal, that his last uh, couple hundred page book that he wanted to make a statement to the American Evangelical Church was entitled, and extremely negative, The Great Evangelical Disaster. And in that book, he talked almost prophetically, knowing what was coming in the American church, first called evangelical or Bible-believing, what he saw in the late 70s and early 80s, and how it relates today is uncanny. Here's what he had to say, which is even more applicable for today. Here is the great evangelical disaster. So he's going to define it. It is the failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. Did you get it? Great evangelical disaster is the failure, this is 40 years ago, of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth, biblical truth. There's only one word for this, accommodation. If you don't know what that word means, what it means is you take enemies and you accommodate them or you unite them in compromise. That's what accommodation means. Reconciling enemies. And he's referring to accommodation not politically but in the church. 
When he's saying when the evangelical church fails to stand for the truth of the word of God, it moves into accommodation. He continues. The evangelical church has accommodated to the, to the world's spirit of the age. First and foremost, there has been accommodation on scripture. This is why I'm quoting this, because we're talking now, starting to move towards the discussion of the priority of the word of God in the church. Again, first and foremost, there has been accommodation or compromise on Scripture so that many who call themselves evangelicals hold to a weakened view of the Bible and no longer affirm the truth of, the, the, the truth of all the Bible that it teaches. This accommodation in evangelicalism has been costly, first in destroying the power of the Scriptures to confront the spirit of our age. Within evangelicalism, there are a growing number who are modifying their views on the inerrancy of the Bible so the full authority of Scripture is completely undercut. Compromising the full authority of Scripture eventually affects what it means to be a Christian theologically and how we live in the full spectrum of human life. You understand what he's saying? He says when evangelicalism in the 80s is systematically destroying the concept of the inerrancy of Scripture, we can't have proper doctrine and we can't live the Christian life. That's what he's saying. It's impossible. He continues, it is important to note that up until recent times, 1984, number one, belief in the inerrancy of scripture, even when it was not practiced fully, and two, claiming to be a Christian were seen as two things that went together, believing in inerrancy, claiming to be a Christian. They went together up until recent times. If you were a Christian, you also trusted in the complete reliability of God's written word, the Bible. If you did not believe in the Bible, if you did not back then, for decades and centuries, speaking to past history before him, if you did not believe in the Bible, you did not claim to be a Christian. But no one until the past 200 years, Schaefer said, until the past 200 years or so, tried to say this. No one tried to say this, quote, I'm a Christian, but at the same time I believe the Bible to be full of errors, end quote. As incredible, he said, as this may seem to Bible-believing Christians today, that is now what is happening within the evangelical world. That's a disaster. It is people who claim to be born-again Christians in Bible-believing churches that don't believe in the inerrancy of the, of the Word of God. That's the disaster. It's never been around until these last days. Now, if that was true 40 years ago, we all know how badly this issue has infected all aspects of the Bible-believing church today. The Bible simply is no longer important to most so-called Christians. However, I would put to you that today, the situation no longer is just about evangelicalism, having throughout its leadership ranks today massive numbers who reject the inerrancy of the Bible. It's not just about that, that the Bible um, has errors. Inerrancy, by the way, means no errors in the Bible. It's not just about that anymore. That was what he was confronting, was in missions... Bible schools, seminaries, churches, evangelistic organizations, a massive and growing number of evangelical, supposed evangelical Christians who rejected inerrancy and said that they were Christians, but they didn't believe in the Bible being inerrant. Today, it's not just that. It's worse. And in your note sheet, let's examine two terminal issues that now have been spawned over the last 40 years since Francis Schaeffer wrote The Great Evangelical Disaster. In your note sheet, number one, there are two terminal issues surrounding the death of inerrancy in Christianity today that makes the situation far worse than in Schaeffer's day. Now let's stop just for a moment. There were those who were Bible-believing in the 70s and 80s, and a growing chorus that, well, I believe the Bible contains God's word, but it's not inerrant. It's got all sorts of errors. And then there were, in Bible-believing Christianity, those who believe that the Bible is authoritative, infallible, and has no errors. Those two groups. And the second group that believed that the Bible had no errors would confront and discipline the first group out of various organizations. Are we clear on that? So it was a war going on. And wherever there were schools, churches, missions, evangelistic organizations where men rose up and said in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, I believe the Bible, but it's not inerrant and it's not all reliable. 
All right, so back in the 60s, 70s, days, you had these group of liberals, claimed to be evangelical, but they were warring, and especially coming out of the British evangelical church, that's where a lot of this mess came from. And Schaefer was pointing this out in his book. And back then you had fundamentalists who were, and evangelicals who were conservative fundamentalists who were saying, this is wrong, we believe in inerrancy, you can't function as a Christian, and would target them and discipline them and get them out. That's changed. Now we have something far worse. Number one, terminal death issue number one, this is today, is that evangelicalism allows, allows such Bible rejectors into its mission schools and churches and no one cares no one cares this is the practical acceptance of heresy this is the practical acceptance of heresy this is why it's far worse than even in Francis Schaeffer's day of course now you can understand why it gets that way if uh you wonder for instance how in the inner city you can go into some houses and I've talked to some police one policeman I know personally, and they go into houses, and you walk in, and the entire house is filled with roaches, covering the walls, scurrying everywhere. You say, how does that ever happen? It's accommodation, roach accommodation. You get used to a few, then you don't kill them, then you get a bunch, they just grow, and then you don't mind if you crunch them under your feet, right? Okay. So you can understand in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that if we had this group that was constantly claiming to be Bible-believing, born-again evangelical, who rejected inerrancy. Yes, there'd be a movement back then that was trying to oust them, but there was a greater movement that slowly over time accommodated, as Schaefer said, and allowed them in our house. And then they're not run out anymore because people really don't care. And this is shown formally by leadership that is considered all right. And I gave you an example of this last Sunday was uh, back in May, as I mentioned last Sunday, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention this past year got up and proclaimed before the school as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention that he is God. Nobody ran him out. Nobody cares. This is the same thing how somebody can be in a Bible-believing church, sit under teaching like this, not necessarily you folks, but in a church like this, then go out and turn on the most abominable teacher on television or the radio, listen to Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, or anyone else? Who cares? Far more terminal death. Number two, terminal death issue number two. In Bible-believing churches, since Francis Schaeffer wrote that, there has grown an overwhelming belief among professed believers that one can believe in inerrancy and the power of the word while never really reading or studying the Bible. This is what we would call, uh, the first terminal death would we call uh, lack of discipline and the acceptance of heresy. That's doctrinal acceptance of heresy. That's uh, heterodoxy. And this is uh, practice, heteropraxis. This is technical terms. This is the practical renunciation of God's word. So the first one is acceptance of error theologically. Who cares? The second one that you filled in is the acceptance in one's personal life of practical heresy. I affirm that I believe in the Bible that it's inerrant, but I can't be bothered with it during the week. And that's what we were reading about in our responsive reading that I pointed out, that a person who's hardened their heart to the word of God uh, no longer knows God and his word. So this is the practical renunciation of God's word. So look at those two statements. Under terminal death issue number one, this is practical acceptance of heresy today. And then under terminal death issue number two, this is practical renunciation of God's word. Practical renunciation. So we've gone from this fringe group in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I'm evangelical, but I, this, only an idiot would accept, believe in inerrancy. And most of the church saying that's wrong, that's bad, then slowly accepting it to today now. It doesn't matter if a person is a pastor or a president of a school, mission organization, or whatever. It doesn't matter if heresy, especially concerning the issue of inerrancy, is accepted or not. Nobody cares. That's why the IFCA, for decades, being probably the most fundamental Bible-believing organization that we belong to, has had within its house countless numbers of pastors and Christian leaders who do not believe that repentance is part of the gospel. How does that happen? Don't care. It's basically the issue. Now, 
Number two in your note sheet, which is worse? And when I say which is worse, I'm referring to those two statements above. The acceptance of heresy or the practical renunciation of God's word in a believer's life. So you can see that those two encompass everything going on in the church today. The formal pastors and theologians and professors in our schools who can just say it's no big deal if somebody rejects inerrancy. It's a debatable issue down to the practical behavior in our pews of Christians in Bible-believing churches who sign a doctrinal statement that says, I believe in the inerrancy of the word, but I can't be bothered doing these four things. Reading, studying, understanding, and applying. See, which of those two is worse? And let's reaffirm what those two are that I'm referring to. Number one is public rejection that the Bible is the inerrant word of God worse? Or is number two, outwardly affirming the Bible is the word of God, but privately ignoring it? Second one, very good. Second one is far worse. So number one, which is worse? Number one, the public rejection that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Or number two, or outwardly affirming the Bible is the word of God, but privately ignoring it. That is far worse. That raises the issue... Well, wait a minute. So somebody gets up in a school, a church, and says, I don't believe in inerrancy. Isn't that worse than someone who really is a Christian in the pew of a church says, I believe in inerrancy, but never reads, studies, understands, or applies? That, by the way, is practical heresy. To never read, study, understand, and apply. The second one is worse. This is all an introduction rolling in to verses 3 and 4 and 5 in First Timothy. Now, number 3. Why is the section, second option worse? Well, here's the answer. The reason why the second option is worse is that person is Laodicean to the core. Laodicean. Laodicean to the core. Do you remember the Laodicean church? Go to Revelation. Some of the most, of the seven churches of Revelation, the Laodicean really is the one that God really gets hot after and really attacks. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. Now, you say, okay, help me out with this, John. I'm somewhat confused. You're going a little fast here. So what, what is Laodicean to the core? It's that idea that I affirm formally that I believe in inerrancy, but I ignore the Bible in my life, practically speaking. That's Laodicean, and it's worse, and we're looking at why. Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I gave you a word, a formal theological word for what God is describing, Christ is describing uh, in verses 15 and 16 earlier. What was that word? Starts with the letter A. Nope. Nope. When you take two opposites, accommodation, join them together. See that? Hot joined with cold produces lukewarm. Of course, this is a geographical reference as well. You had a series of three churches in the Lycus Valley. I've talked to you about this before. Uh, you had Colossae, Heropolis, and Laodicea. And... Uh, you had uh, mountain springs and underground hot springs, both near Heropolis and Colossae, and they would unite. So you had a watershed situation. A watershed is where water runs down hills and valleys in different places. And they united down the valley to Laodicea. Laodicea was known for its tepid or bleh, lukewarm room temperature water because they combined. So this compromise of water geographically is what is being used here to describe their spiritual condition. So, verse 17, what were these believers in Laodicea doing? I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Well, we're talking about spiritual issues here. I believe. I'm a Bible-believing fundamentalist. I am. I affirm it. And God says, but you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. They weren't that way physically. They were very wealthy um, physically, materialistically. He's talking about spiritually. And why is that? Because of accommodation. 
It is the idea to firmly hold to prayer and never pray. It is the idea to firmly believe in the inerrancy and power of the Word of God and don't read, study, understand, and apply. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. He wants them hot only. Do you notice that? Doesn't want them cold, doesn't want them lukewarm. He wants them hot. That's why fire is brought up. He wants them hot, not compromising, not accommodating. So you may become rich in white garments, that's purity, repentance. So that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Again, Laodicea was known, a lot of its wealth was based on the issue of fine garment, garments that were made in the Roman Empire as well as a, an ointment for infected eyes. So he just uses those analogies to bring it in. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. He says, I'm going to close you down if you don't do that. When he says in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That's not a verse for evangelism. Don't quote that to an unbeliever. He's talking to a church. And basically he's saying, I'm not in this church, the Laodicean. He's knocking on the door to get in. So, Back to number three in your note sheet. The reason why outwardly affirming the Bible is the word of God but privately ignoring it is far worse is because this is blatant hypocrisy. Write it down. This is hot on Bible creeds, cold on Bible usage. Classic Christian hypocrisy. Schaefer talks about this, and I'll quote him again. He says, this is where a professed believer comes to live comfortably with the idea that one can claim to believe the Bible as God's word, but never seeing the need to use it oneself. Comfortable with that. Hardened in the heart towards that idea. I am comfortable. I rest easy that I affirm the word of God is true, but never bother to use it. That is far worse than being cold. I renounce inerrancy. Lukewarm is, I believe in inerrancy. I renounce it practically. And this is how heresy has grown. Under number three, what this has done is created heresy in our pews. Why? Because Christians don't know the Bible. Christians don't know the Bible. Since they don't know the Bible, they claim to be inerrant. This was a historical problem with Westchester Bible Church that we came from. You'd have one pastor, Bob Gray, preached repentance and lordship. The next one would preach no repentance and no lordship. And people in the pews will say, well, who's to say? What does it matter? Bible-believing Christians who believe in the authority of the word of God and don't care and accommodate, first pastor preaches repentance, next one doesn't. Accommodate them both. How can it be both? How could you tell an unbeliever you may either repent or not repent in faith? You may receive Christ as Lord or not receive him as Lord by faith. Interestingly, later on in Evangelical Disaster, it's a, it's a marvelous classic. Um, Schaefer brings up two evidences in 1984 that the church is completely, and Bible-believing Christians just don't care anymore. And they're just accommodating everything. Two things. He says, number one, the, the death of repentance in the church. Now that one we would figure, but number two, are you ready for this one? The death of a strict biblical standard on divorce remarriage. He says the church in the last 40 years has accommodated divorce remarriage so that basically it's not based on a firm understanding of the scriptures, but on what personally makes a person feel happy. Wow. And he says once you decide your doctrine is based on personal happiness, everything is wrecked. He talks about the house on the pillars and it just collapses. I've never heard anyone, when I've given my biblical view of divorce remarriage, which is the biblical one, that there are no grounds, period. I've never heard anyone say to me, well, I've studied it in depth and I see what you're saying. What I always get back is, well, what you're relegating me to is a life of misery all alone. That is personal happiness. Isn't that interesting that Schaefer raises that issue repeatedly? This is why... This second option is so much worse. When we accommodate our inerrancy belief 
with our atheism of practice. We accommodate a firm belief in inerrancy with a firm ignoring of the word together into one Christian and live at peace with that. Now, the Bible is even more firm than Schaefer on this issue, and Christ is. In Matthew 7, if you turn back there, the Lord had some words for this type of individual, and this is why this person is far worse. Sure, the person who rejects formally inerrancy is a heretic and is unsaved, but far more devious is the person within our midst who claims to be a mouse when actually they're a rat. And Christ gets into this issue in Matthew 7. That this is impossible. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, notice the affirmation, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is not that good works get you to heaven. It is a consistency of affirmation with life lived. So fill in the blanks. You've got an under, it should say one, two, three. Unfortunately, it says one, two, two. I'm sorry for that. You notice your numbering of the introduction. Number one, there are two terminal issues. Number two, which is worse. And it should say number three, what is the second option? Far, why is it far worse? So change that second two to a three. But then if you go down three lines, you see the bull-faced red blank lines with the word without in between. Let's fill that in. This, what Christ is saying, this is affirmation without transformation. Affirmation without transformation. This is an unbeliever. Notice, we find the will of God out in his word. And what Christ is saying is, if you believe in lordship, remember Christ said repeatedly to the, to the disciples and to the lost, you call me Lord, but you what? Do not do what I say, right? Remember that? Okay. So say I believe in the powerful, divine, miraculous, and errant word, and I don't read, study, understand, and apply. Thus I live as a public testimony in the church and in my own life of being permanently ignorant of the scriptures. What does Christ say about this dichotomy here, this accommodation? What is he saying? Verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not serve and do all these things together? He's concerned about the will of God in verse 21, Lord Jesus is, in the sermon on the mount. And then look at verse 23, and then I will declare to them, them, those who proclaim Lord, Lord, but don't, aren't concerned with the written will of God. I never knew you. These are not backslidden. These are unbelievers. Accommodation is a mark of heresy. Accommodation is a mark of an apostate. This is what's infected our church. So we've gone from 60s, 70s, and 80s, esoteric theologians claim to be evangelical and Bible-believing, but only an idiot would ever believe that the Bible doesn't have errors, it's full of errors, but it still contains, it contains the Word of God. And fundamentalism and evangelicalism that was conservative reared up and said, no, you're wrong, you, you can't possibly, you, you destroy inerrancy, you destroy everything, and we're going to run you out. Uh, but then we love you, so maybe we'll leave you in. And so then maybe we'll just leave you in and not worry about running you out. And so then, basically, who cares over the last 40 years? And then it's trickled down into the church in what we would call heteropraxy, false practice. Scores in our churches of Bible-believing fundamental Christians who receive Christ as Lord and can't be bothered with his will. Don't read, study, understand, or apply. Back to Schaefer. Quote, same book. It is the obeying of Scripture which is the watershed. Watershed, again, is a term for dividing line. You can go into the Himalayas. He lived in the Swiss Alps. Labrie was his, uh, kind of his commune that he had, open for any philosophical discussions. Anyone could come by and stay with he and his wife. And he lived in Europe. And so in the Swiss mountains, you'd have mountains that would have runoff. And these were watersheds. Well, what happened is water would flow one way to this river, and water would flow on another part of that mountain to a different river. And a dividing line is called the watershed between the flow of water this way. This is uh, water engineers have to figure this out when they build dams. They have to examine the terrain and watch the watershed to see where the dividing line is between water that goes this way and water that goes this way, even though they seem to converge. 
So he said, it is the obeying of scripture which is the dividing line. The dividing line between what? It is the evidence. It is the dividing line between what is a true Christian and what is a false. It is that. He goes on. It is believing and applying it to our lives which demonstrates that we, in fact, believe it. Did you catch that? It is believing and applying it to our lives which demonstrates whether we, in fact, believe it. So the fundamentalist believer who signs the doctrinal statement, I believe in the inerrancy of the word, but doesn't read, study, understand, and apply. The, the, the watershed, the divining line is, if I'm not acting on my belief, my belief is false. False. He says, we can say the Bible is without mistake, his words now, and still destroy it. If we bend the scriptures by our lives to fit the culture, rather than judging the culture by the scriptures. And he starts to attack in the book this whole idea that the church needs to be culturally relevant. We've got it completely backwards. You don't culturalize the church to win the lost. You attack the culture with the word of God. Completely the opposite. The foundation of 60 years of American youth ministry is we need young people who run our church youth ministries to reach the lost by being culturally aware. And he says, that is fatal. Whether young or old, you target with the word of God. You don't accommodate it to the culture. So we bend the scriptures by our lives to fit the culture rather than judging the culture by the scriptures. Youth ministry, profound youth ministry, which is very rare in this country, is youth leadership that confronts in the youth groups the evil of the youth culture. Not trying to live, sound, dress, and talk like the culture. He goes on, we must say most lovingly but clearly, evangelicalism is not consistently evangelical at all unless there is a line drawn between those who take a full view of Scripture as inerrant and those who do not. It is the obeying of Scripture that is a line in the sand, obeying the Bible equally in doctrine and in the way we live in the full spectrum of life, end quote. What a dynamite quote that is. He was run out on a rail for this book, by the way. Evangelicalism basically said, what are you doing in your earlier books of 25? You're all concerned about the culture. Why are you talking about all this doctrine and inerrancy? You see, the church had already capitulated. Church had already become his enemy when he was just spouting what was true. So under number three, which printed as number two, confusing you, this is where Bible-believing Christians have failed and fallen since Schaefer's day. This is where we failed and fallen, holding to the high position of Scripture, while not reading, studying, understanding, and obeying it. This is where we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're studying in the climate of a church system that has long since abandoned inerrancy and can live with the fact that I can believe it, so to speak, in my hand raised up, but I will never do it practically speaking. And we come to verse 3, and we find that what Paul is confronting is something that the church really wants no part of. Look at verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain out at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's heresy. Stop them from teaching heresy. And to study this in the context of the American church environment is to say, basically, we're going against the whole culture of the church environment because nobody wants to stop heresy anywhere. It goes on in verse 4, in order to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. Speculation rules the day, by the way, today. And I'll give an example of that from over 30 years ago that I heard on WGN years ago that I still remember. Speculation is, I think, I feel, I personally have an inner witness in I believe. I believe. See? Rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith, the goal of our instruction, apostolic, love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Do you notice in verse 5, instruction is meant to transform. Do you see that in verse 5? It's meant to transform. Belief is irrelevant then. It doesn't matter what we believe if we don't obey, if we don't act on it. All right, so what we have is, in Schaefer's day, 
the liberal evangelical who rejected inerrancy, they weren't concerned about living according to the Bible at all because they rejected it. And he fell way long ago in the American church. Today, the fundamentalist sits in the pew in Bible-believing fundamental churches and has since fallen, not through a public liberalization and renunciation of inerrancy. The fundamentalist, now 40 years later, sits in the pew and has fallen through the disuse of the Bible. The liberal fell by never believing the Bible was inerrant to begin with. And then the liberal abandoned the Bible. And he abandoned the Bible on a number one argument used against the inerrant centrality of the Bible in Christian experience. The liberal always had this as his primary argument. The liberal evangelical who rejects inerrancy always would smirk as he confidently affirmed the fact that none of the original manuscripts that were inerrant, some liberals will grant that, they may have been inerrant when they were originally written, I don't know. But even if they were, none of the inerrant manuscripts are in existence today. And so the liberal smirks, you fundamentalists, you believe in the inerrancy of scripture, you don't even have the original works. It's a nonsense issue. The liberal says, only the originals are inerrant. We don't have God's word today in the, original in the originals, only a copy and copies. Therefore, the Bible contains God's words and ideas in a context of error. But the Bible is not God's word. So the church today has gone from believing all of it, like Schaefer believed, all of it is the full inerrant word of God, to it contains the word of God, but it's full of errors. It's like finding truth in a haystack of error. Finding the needle of truth in the haystack of error. That's what we're to do today. The haystack is the Bible full of errors. And the needles are the no golden nuggets of truth that you can find buried in the scriptures which are with error. And who decides who finds those golden nuggets of truth in a field of errors? Me. You. The inner witness. Probably about 30 years ago, I remember listening to WGN uh, AM 720 and uh, the morning uh, DJ or disc jockey, I can't remember who it was, probably that famous guy that was there all those years. Uh, he had a liberal Protestant minister on and he admitted, the liberal Protestant minister admitted he didn't believe the Bible was inerrant and he said, I remember he said something along the lines of, I appeal I appeal daily to the life of Jesus. I don't believe in the inerrancy of scriptures. That's foolish. Only an idiot would believe in that. There's errors for historical, scientific, philosophical, grammatical. There's errors everywhere. So I, I, don't, I don't appeal to the Bible. I appeal to the person and life of Jesus. That's what he said. There was a more conservative guy on that radio show. And he said, and this was a bomb going off, the conservative guy said to the liberal this, how could you believe in the life of Jesus when without the Bible, you can't even be sure that Jesus ever existed? You know what his response was? The liberal? He had an inner feeling that told him Jesus was real. Without a sure and errant written word of God, it really comes down to our own personal experience, doesn't it? And we find this all through Bible-believing Christianity, don't we? Born-again Christians, so to speak, in our church in the past, possibly presently, I don't know, or all around us in our churches that say, well, I feel, I believe, I disagree with you because I feel this is true. I know this experience is right. That's the destruction of the church. Because in each one of us has become a God Deciding what is in the Bible that is true and what is not. We're the arbiters of our own doom by relying on the inner witness of truth that never existed to begin with because we're depraved. Martin Luther said many centuries ago, and I quote Martin Luther, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, you know what he's saying? I believe everything but where the world attacks. And that's the American church. We believe in everything. Well, the world says that you can get divorced from your marriage. Okay, 
We'll capitulate. We'll accommodate. Oh, the world says you can have women in leadership. Oh, okay. Well, we'll pitch our tent there and accommodate. The world says it's foolish to believe that humans could write an inerrant Bible. Okay, we'll capitulate and reject that. Mm -hmm. The world says all Christian faiths are the same. So Mormons believe. So evangelicalism has come along and said Mormons are our fellow brothers and sisters. We just capitulate. Martin Luther talked about this. Believe the word of God, but when the world speaks against the word of God, accommodate. He goes on. He says this. Where the battle rages with the culture, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the other battlefronts is mere flight and disgrace. If the soldier flinches at that one moment where the battle rages, end quote. Heresy seems so logical. Logic is a partner to heresy. Logic has said for 60 years in evangelicalism that only the originals are inerrant, not the copies. Therefore, only the originals are God's word. You're fighting a losing battle, John. You only have a copy, and those are corrupted by transmissional errors. How do we speak to that argument from liberals that we've been speaking to? Uh, Macon, back in the 1920s, confronted this liberalism that was back in the 1920s in attacks against inerrancy. There are three very simple verses that I'll close with that bring that whole argument down on its head that since we don't have the original copies, we can't possibly have an inerrant word. Matthew 5, Christ warned us of this issue. Matthew 5, verse 18. Matthew 5, 18. I truly say to you, so Jesus is either lying or he's not, Matthew 5.18, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do we still have heaven and earth today? Do we still then have God's law down to the smallest stroke and letter? Yes or no? So God not only had to inspire the writers, but he had to inherently protect the dissemination through copying. We would have nothing today. And by the way, there were no original copies of the Old Testament in existence in Israel when Jesus spoke these words. He was referring to copies. God said it was his law. Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Verse 32, now learn the parables from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near, referring to the return of Christ. We can see evidences of Christ's coming. Verse 33, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. He's saying prophecy will be fulfilled when you see these things. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation... The word generation is not referring to, like we think today, a generation of 40 years. It's referring to the Jews. The word literally means race. He's promising that the Jews will never disappear on this planet. Hmm. That's an attack right in the face of reformers who believe that God is done with Israel. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, verse 35, will not pass away. Verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things prophetically. The Jews will always be in place until prophecy is fulfilled, verse 34. And then he broadens the impact of scripture. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My words directly. It's irrelevant whether they're the originals or copies. His word is right here on this pulpit. Because heaven and earth has not passed away. Logic of heresy is very profound. We don't have the originals, so there's no inerrancy. Christ is arguing against that. And then lastly, John chapter 10. Picking up a copy of the law in John chapter 10. 
He drops a bomb in verse 35, Jesus does. He appeals to the written law in verse 34, a copy of it in verse 34, John 10, 34. Has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. So he's appealing for his defense of who he is to the written word of God, which is a copy. And if you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and now, currently, the scripture present tense cannot be broken. He calls the copy of the word he's holding, two things in verse 35, the word of God and the scriptures, the sacred writings. So, when we come to our study in 1 Timothy 1, which is the first of three epistles written to show Christians how any church is to operate and what the priorities are, the first thing the Spirit writes about is the confrontation of heresy and the promotion of truth. The confrontation of heresy and the promotion of truth. And I agree with Schaefer wholeheartedly. The accurate and errant word of God is not the first priority of most believers today, nor is it the first place priority of most Bible-believing churches. Shown by decreased teaching, canceling of services, shorter sermons. I've never had any visitor complain that we did not have enough teaching of the word of God in this church. I've never had that happen in 35 years. Some visitor came in and said, you only teach the Bible three times a week to all adults. I've never had anyone say that we did not have enough teaching services. When the book of Acts in Acts 2 said, the new church studied under the apostles' teaching every single day day. Never had anyone say that to me because it's not important. What do you think I've had visitors come in and complain about in our church? We need more music. We need to be culturally relevant so we need to include drama. Include drama. You know, you get more people in here if you had fun. You'll never survive without a youth director and a youth ministry. And let me tell you something, John, as one person said, you'll never keep people here without air conditioning. And I really struggle with visiting your church. There is no place to park. My take on this is, since the Bible taught in churches is so rare, I want to sweat under it when I'm teaching, being taught. And I want to really work hard to get to it with no parking. I want that to tell me how important it is. I don't want to feel comfortable under the word of God or convenient that I can park in a parking lot. I'm not saying those are wrong. Never had anyone say, why do you only teach the Bible three times? Because accommodation has already occurred. We need all these other things to make a church grow. Do you know why this church is so small? It's not the music. It's not the parking, it's not the lack of air conditioning, it's not the fact that you have to use a pillow under your bottom to sit there. It isn't the parking, it isn't the crime, it isn't the community. The reason this church is so small is the spirit of the age in the church is Christians don't want the word of God. They affirm inerrancy, but they nail it with accommodation. So they come in here and bored. Remember, a woman and her daughter were coming downstairs a few years before the plague, sitting for a few weeks. And I remember her sitting there and just had a look like this. I said, oh, this lady's gone. She lived in Hyde Park. I could just tell. Didn't open her Bible. I don't know what she was looking for, but guess what she was not looking for? Teaching of the Word of God. We've accommodated. We want all these other things. So why do so many leave churches like ours? They're looking for something more. And how is that determined? By the inner voice in my heart. I just feel this is not what God would have. When Jesus picked up the copy of the word of God in John chapter 10 and said, thus says the word of God. Jesus, in the temple, referred to the word of God. So should we. Schaefer was right. The Bible may be inerrant, but it's not relevant to Bible-believing Christians. What do we do as believers then? Examine your own life. This is about application. The power of Christianity is not from the Bible today, 
but it's what believers want in their churches. What do you believe, number one? Heads bowed, eyes closed. What do you believe about the word of God? Is this the key to this church? Is this the key to everything? Are we suffering in this church numerically and financially because people don't want the word? You bet we are. Do you believe that? Are you convinced if we just had other things other than the scriptures, this church would grow? Heads bowed, eyes closed. And then more frankly to all of us, do you believe in prayer? Do you pray privately at home every day in depth? Then your belief means nothing. Do you believe the Bible is God's inerrant, no-error word of God, and you spend little or no time in it? You are not saved. If that's the pattern of your life, unbroken and unrepented of. Are you known as a deeply knowledgeable and applicable of the word Christian? Does the words of your mouth come out of your mouth in this fellowship and show forth to others how deeply you know the scriptures? Or is the testimony of your life that you call the Bible his word and never study it and understand it, speak it or live it out? Only you can judge your private life in your own heart and mind, and I can judge mine. But I never want the Lord to say to me on Judgment Day, you say, Lord, Lord, but don't do the things that I have said in the Word. Depart from me, I never knew you. Primary mark of a true believer. Believes in inerrancy. Obeys it. Through reading, studying, understanding, and applying. It's as simple as that. Father, bring revival to the church today, a return to the dividing line, the watershed of inerrancy. The church today called evangelicals apostate thoroughly to the core. Someone said apostasy is the major A word. That's exactly right. It is how we describe evangelicalism today as apostate. And the reason it is apostate is because of the other A letter, accommodation. Compromise of the scriptures in theological, doctrinal statements. Compromising of your word, dear Lord, in the practical daily lives of professors. Bring us to repentance. And as we start then next Sunday, Lord, to delve into the supreme negativity that Paul starts with first. How great leaders want to quit and the temptation of quitting. And then as Paul confronts the great leaders have to war against heresy. May we submit to these truths in practice and not just in precept. In Jesus' name, amen.